Okay, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. It's my first time. Not my first time in Houston, but my first time at this event. And it's really something to see. So many people coming together. But I understand 1,000, 1,500 people uh, for a day of, of, uh, of learning and growth like this. It's really, really a beautiful thing. So uh, we, have, we have a little time together. And we're going to use it to speak a little bit about parenting and relationships in the 21st century. We happen to be in the 21st century, so it's a good time to talk about that. And um, what I would like to do is share with you a few, a few points, a few ideas, a few points of focus. Uh, if we were in the 20, we ask ourselves if we were in the 20th century, would it be a different speech? And yeah, a lot of it would be. The, the values, the focus, I think that we're going to talk about are eternal values. They're things which we would talk about whenever and wherever we are. But the specific challenges and the specific venue within which we are here building relationships and trying to create families has certainly shifted and changed. So we'll try to talk about a few core principles, a few core, a few core values, things to, to, to build. Uh, one, one of the elements we're going to try to speak about is the area of focus. Uh, the, the challenges of distractibility are certainly uh, a little bit grown in the 21st century. You may notice um, when I started as a rabbi 25 years ago, people didn't have to be told to shut off their phones before a lecture began. They say, what, I should go home and unplug my phone from the wall? Why should I do that? <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, so, you know, there's a little, there's, there's a big change as far as that goes, something which has huge impact on relationships. A second area I think we're going to talk about is the area of, of helping to create a sense of stability and consistency and strength, confidence in the enduring nature of relationships, which is certainly a sensitive challenge which exists in the world around us, not unique to the 21st century. I don't know if even more so in the 21st century than the, than the 20th, but a reality. And, uh, and the third is the, the challenge and the importance of creating a sense of intimacy within relationship. Relationships of family members, of friends, parents and children, the, the sense of creating some kind of a, of, a, of a home, of a private space, of a place where you're able to build something special. So I would like to, to, to start the discussion by sharing with you a story. It's one of my favorite personal stories, personal familial experiences, which for, for us was formative. And I re relive literally and remember this story virtually every Friday evening. Uh, in 2002, in the summer of 2002, almost 18 years ago, I uh, traveled to Israel together with my family and a number of other families. We filled up a bus of about 50 people, uh, parents and children, many, many young children from our congregation in Baltimore, and we traveled to Israel for a two-week visit. Now, that's not particularly unique in the general sense, but in the summer of 2002, it was extremely unique. Because, as many of you may remember, in the summer of 2002, things were blowing up everywhere in Israel, literally. It was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible time. The Hebrew University Cafe, Tzifat, all kinds of places. Again, some of you may remember these events as they were happening. But it was really the middle of what they called the Second Intifada. There were bus bombings and suicide bombers. There was stuff going on all over the place. So much so that we, in our trip in the summertime, which, you know, thank God, today is a very different situation. And you'll go over the place and you'll see tour buses every place. Over the two weeks, we encountered one other tour group which was 18 people from Chicago. The hotels in Israel were so empty that the Israeli government made a program of discounting the hotels so that Israelis could go to get a break from their own stress. They could go for, to the hotels for, for a time at a fraction of the cost. It was a very tense, very, very difficult time. And the second Shabbat of our trip we spent in Jerusalem, 
we were staying at a hotel, which if some of you travel regularly to Jerusalem, you may be familiar with its location. It has been shuttered for probably at least the past 10 years. It's right outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. It's, if you know where the town hall of Jerusalem is, it's sort of catty corner you know, to that. It was called Pninat Dan, the Dan Pearl Hotel. It was a short walk to the Jaffa Gate to go to the old city of Jerusalem, a short walk to go to East Jerusalem, sort of on the border, what was literally once the border of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem pre-1967. And we stayed there for Shabbat so that we would be able to go to pray at the Kotel, at the Western Wall, which many of us did on Friday evening to, to bring in the Shabbat. And we came back. Not everybody went, so it's a walk. So uh, many of the of the little children couldn't go, and a caregiver, uh, some of the fathers, some of the mothers, stayed back in order to be with them and take care of them. And uh, after the Friday night service, we came back to the hotel to have a Shabbat dinner, as you would expect. And we were all assembling for the Shabbat dinner, and all of us were getting together, except there was one person missing, and that was our daughter, Devorah, who at the time was, I think, maybe eight years old, eight years old or so, maybe a little bit younger, seven years old. And um, we couldn't, she wasn't around. So, of course, we went looking for her. There were lots of kids running around the hotel. We had the run of the place. Went looking for her. Couldn't find her. Maybe she's in the room. We went back to the room. Couldn't find her. She hadn't come with me to the evening service. She had stayed behind with my wife and so on. And um, we couldn't find her. She very, always was and still is a very responsible young woman. And we got a little nervous. Actually, after a little while, we got very, very nervous. The hotel was located on the border of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. Uh, the hotel wasn't a, uh, uh, you know, a uniquely Jewish place. Virtually the majority, easily, of the employees were residents of East Jerusalem. That's the way it was and always is. There's no, uh, there's no separation of, of Jews and the Arab population. And in the context of everything which was going on, when your seven-year-old daughter, your responsible seven-year-old daughter, disappears on Friday evening and that place at that time, you get kind of nervous. And we were very, very nervous. And the whole group went spreading out within the hotel looking for her. And it was a while. It felt like something between 100 and 150 years. And then we found her. Someone, one of the kids found our daughter. She had been locked into a restroom. Into a restroom. The way the restrooms are built, it's not like you can slide out from underneath. You know, the way they are over there, it was a metal door against a stone thing. And the door wasn't sitting right in the, in the frame. And you couldn't get it open easily. She couldn't get it open. She had closed the door. She couldn't open it. Perhaps one of the reasons why the hotel has been shuttered for the past 10 years. So thank God she came out and she was fine. She wasn't even like sobbing. So I talked to her, I said, Devora, I said, I'm so glad you're okay. She said, yeah, fine, I'm okay. I said, we were very worried about you. We didn't find you for a while. He says, I'm okay. He says, tell me something. Were you scared? Were you worried all that time that we were looking you? You were stuck here. You couldn't get out. Were you worried? And she had been calling out, and somebody heard her faint cries, literally, you know, like something out of a movie. Somebody heard her faint cries who was passing by looking at the bathroom. She said, no, I wasn't worried. Why weren't you worried? She said, Abba, which is what she calls me, says, it's Friday night. And I know what happens after you sing Shalom Aleichem and Eshet Chayil, before you make Kiddush on Friday night, what do you do? Bless you give blessings to the children. You bless each and every one of the children. And I know what you do every Friday night. First you bless Yisachar, my oldest son. Then you bless Shlomo, our second son. And then you would bless me. And so I know you would cut, it would be my turn, and you would say, where's Devorah? And you would find me. 
Sorry, I still get emotional when I tell the story. Um, now, to me, I say I remember that story every Friday night especially because as a result of that story, I do something beyond what my, what my, what my father did for me. My father, of blessed memory, used to bless us every Friday night. And we follow, I follow with my children exactly the same routine as he did. My wife does it too uh, with the children. Um, but um, I do one thing differently than my father since then. And that is, we bless each and every one of our children, and now, thank God, children-in-law and grandchildren, whether they're there or not. In other words, I go through each and every one of them to remember them, to pray for them, to think about them, to bless them. I have a, a picture from the last wedding of our children, of all of them now next to me, so I, I look at their face before I, before I, I give them a blessing. We have to update the, the picture, thank God. And, uh, and um, each child gets this blessing. Here I was, we were in Houston for, for, for Shabbos. I was at Eric's house on Friday night and uh, had to take a few minutes to be able to give a blessing to each one of them privately, you know, quietly, but to go through each one. And I think that, um, you know, that picture, that image, that story is one which is fundamental, fundamental to not just creating a sense of security for your child who happens to be locked in a bathroom on the border of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, but it's something which is fundamental to create that sense for your child anytime and every time. I don't know how many of my children, wherever they are, whatever they're out around their own tables, pause every night to think about the fact, you know, here, as I'm wherever I am and I'm blessing my child, you know, Abba, back in Baltimore or wherever he is, is thinking about me. But I know that many of them are. And if it's not every Friday night, it's very, very frequently as they may turn to their own children. And what it is, is it grants an opportunity to do something with which whether you use this vehicle of the blessing of Friday night, or you use any other vehicle, we have a chance to do something for the, our children, for the members of our family, that is vital, that is vital. You know, there's a Mishnah in Sanhedrin, in Tractate Sanhedrin. The Mishnah says that God created the, the world with one man and then one woman. And the reason for that, says the Talmud, or a ramification of that is that a person needs to be able to say, a person is obliged to say, the entire world was created just for me. If the world was created for one person, so that means that the world is worthy of being created for one person. Who's that one person? Who's that one person? Okay, so Adam is an easy one, right? The whole world came from him. But why can't I be that person? Who says I'm not that person? And the Mishnah tells us that a person has to have that sense of significance, not a sense of arrogance, a sense of significance, of how much of a world each and every one of us could be, how much of a world each and every one of us could potentially generate. No, there's another, there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of the Fathers. The Mishnah says, it's the first Mishnah in the second chapter of Pirkei Avot. It says, a person should consider, should look at three things. And it will prevent you from doing things wrong. What are the three things? Know what is above you. Know what is above you. An eye that sees, that observes. An ear that hears. And everything that you do is written down. It is inscribed in a book. Now we could read that Mishnah and we could become immediately petrified. We could say the Mishnah says, if you look at these three things, 
you won't do anything wrong because what you're going to realize is that big brother is watching. Everything you do is observed. Where are the hidden cameras in this room? Okay, maybe, I don't know, it's a projector, uh, right? But it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imposing thing. Watch out, whatever you do, look out, somebody's watching. You know, everything is tone. I would like to, to, to suggest to you a different way of, a different way of seeing it. And, and, uh, and um, my wife used to, used to use this method with our children all the time. She would study with them Pirkei Avot and she would teach them this Mishnah and she explained it in this way. I'll give you an image of it. I don't know. Uh, you know, the Houston Astros are a sensitive subject at this point in time. But uh, if, you, if, you make it to a, if you make it to a baseball stadium, so in, uh, in, uh, in Baltimore, I assume it's true in every baseball stadium in the world, they have something called a jumbotron. They have a huge, huge screen out usually in the outfield, you know, one on this side, one on that side, a huge screen. What's on the screen? And sometimes there's something to entertain the crowd, some instant replay, the scoreboard, it tells you the name and the statistics of the person coming up to that, to bat. But a lot of the time, what are they doing? They're surveying the crowd, right? In between, people are cheering. So this is what happens. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen it. There are three people sitting there in a corner somewhere in the in the left field bleachers, and they're sitting there, and who knows what they're doing? You know, they're munching on their popcorn, they're looking this way and that way, and the and the camera focuses on them, and you see them just like sitting there like that, and then one of them notices, and they elbow the next one, and what happens? They're transformed, right? Either they're waving, or they're now they're sitting up straight, right? Instead of you know eating the hot dog with their fingers, they're you know they suddenly take out a fork and knife appears, you know you know what, whatever it is, but it's a whole different story. Why? Because instead of sitting in a corner and doing something yourself insignificant, the world is watching. People are looking at you. What you're doing matters. What the Mishnah is telling us is, you know, one of the great, great plagues of life is the plague of insignificance. People think that what they do doesn't really matter. So we, you know, we slouch, we go through life without thinking that anything we do really makes a difference. And so Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, taught in that Mishnah, you know, if you just consider that, you know, everything you see, it's watched, it's heard, it makes a difference, it's inscribed, you'll live a different life, you'll be a different person. It's not scary. My, you know, my wife used to tell the kids, you know, when, you, when they did something, something good, they said, hey, wave at the camera. Wave at the camera. It may, well, you know, what you did, it's noticed. It makes a difference. Now, how on earth is a person supposed to get that sense? We live in a world with lots of people. Lots of people, swarms of people. Everywhere we go, we're almost surrounded by crowds. Where is a person supposed to get their sense of significance, that for me, the world was worthy of created, of being created. And I think that there's one place where that responsibility lies, and that's with the family members. Parents have to give that sense to their children. Spouses, people in the closest relationships, that's where you grant that sense. If a person's gonna have that sense globally, they only have a chance if they're going to have that sense very, very locally, very familiarly, within the framework of the relationships within which we live. That's a gift that parents have to give to their children. When the child says, I know that you know we're going to have that chance one by one. My, my father, my mother, they're going to cup their hands on my head and they're going to share with me a blessing, a kiss, a hope. As to, as to what I'm going to, you know, who I'm going to be and what I'll be able to live for eventually. And today, that's an incredible gift which we give. It's a gift of significance. I have a friend, a dear friend, 
who's, a, who's an incredible, incredible scholar and an incredible educator. And he's much more of an exuberant person than I am. He, uh, he's, he, he t- told me, he says, you know, he'll speak to his kids on the phone. His kids are already married out of the house. And they'll be in the middle of a conversation and he'll stop and say, excuse me. And he would say to his child, call him by his nickname, Chesky. He says, this is, I just want you to know something. He says, I'm crazy about you. You You're like the most important thing in the world to me. Okay, now we'll resume the conversation. You know what it is for a child to hear that? Now, it's not everybody's style to speak that way, and you you don't want to be artificial. For him, it comes completely and totally naturally. But every one of us has a language within which we can convey how important our child to us is to us. There are positive ways of saying it, and there are also ways of removing things, removing things that create that distraction. So for example, I'm standing here and I'm talking to you. I'm completely focused on you. And I have something right here sitting on the, t- on the desk. Now, I'm not looking at it. The re- there's a reason why I have it here right now. But the truth is, where it should be, would be over here. So first of all, I can't look at it. And you can't see it. There, there are today, with, with the, a tremendous amount of social science research, it is demonstrated that people who have a conversation and never interrupt the conversation by picking up their phone or by looking at a text, but they just have their phone sitting on the table, even face down, it has an effect on the level of connection that people feel in the conversation. It should be invisible. It should be out of sight. Of course, time spent should be uninterrupted. The, the distractibility is the challenge to being able to create a sense of focus and of importance. That you're what my world revolves around. You're so important to me. You're so important. That sense of value which a child gets from their parents it's something that we have to create, something which we have to, which we have to build. Now, in our liturgy, on the High Holy Days, we have a prayer, which is actually of a, of a, of a relatively later, later vintage. It's, a, it's a approximately, at this point, about a thousand years old, but it is, which is, which is younger, I think, and many of the prayers of the liturgy, liturgy on the High Holy Days, it's the Unesan and Tokef prayer. Despite the fact that it's of a later vintage, it probably is considered in, in many places to be the highlight of the central service, the Musaf service on the High Holy Days. It speaks about these days as the, the days of, of judgment, which is what the High Holy Day season is. And it describes how God, quote, unquote, judges us. And what does it say? Kevakarat roe edro. Like the shepherd reviews his sheep. Mavir sono tachas shifta. Each lamb passes beneath his, beneath his stick, beneath his rod. That image, which is given to us, first of all, is one which is so incredibly nurturing. I, I, I'm not a shepherd. I don't have a lot of close friends who are shepherds. But my impression is that when shepherds look at their sheep one by one, they don't look at the sheep and they say, you were a naughty sheep this year. Bad sheep. You, in fact, are the black sheep of the family. <laughs> they don't say that. When a shepherd has its sheep pass by, they look at the sheep and they say, this sheep is not eating well enough. This sheep needs to be scrubbed. This one needs a shearing. They look at each one. And the metaphor is, of course, which has has a very early source from the Mishnah, is that God takes each and every one of us and looks at each and every one of us and tries to see and to anticipate what it is that we need. 
That's the day of judgment. That's the day of decision. And that image is there, of course, to nurture this same sense. There's a world about you. God is there looking at us one by one. As, as parents, as people in relationship, we have to create the metaphor from which people could have that kind of a sense, a true and accurate and positive view of how God looks looks at us, looks towards us. I want to just tell, share with you a story. It's also a, a, a favorite story that I enjoy very much. I, it's very, very meaningful to me as well, especially as a, as a child of... Uh, as a child of a Holocaust survivor and a Holocaust refugee, um, I have an acquaintance, not a, not a, not a friend, but an acquaintance who, uh, who lives in, in New York. His name is Yaakov Solomon, and he is uh, he's himself a, a, a counselor, a mental health counselor, very, very fine person. And um, he, uh, he's, he was taking his children, or his one of his children, to uh, to camp, to summer camp, to sleep away summer camp. And they had uh, instructions as to where the children were supposed to be taken with a bus that would be taking them up to the mountains for summer camp. And he comes to the location and he sees a few kids there. You know, they didn't have luggage, you know, there was nowadays to send the luggage the day before or two days before and so and he comes to a place and he sees a few kids standing there. And he's like, just like puzzled. It's the right place. And he says, he rolls down the window, he says, you know, looks again at the directions. He says, is this, is this the place for camp for such and such? And he says, yes. He says, you're waiting for the bus for camp such and such? He says, yes. And he was amazed. He said, I don't get it. Those are the kids waiting for the bus to take them away. Take them to camp for a couple of weeks. Where are their parents? They dropped them off at the bus. He said, when I was a child, and I went to summer camp, so my father, he said, oh, he took me to the bus. And he waited. But not only did he wait for me to get on the bus, he didn't leave until the bus left. And when the bus left, but the other even when see I was not on the bus, he said, Yaku, open the windows. In those days, I guess you could open the windows on a big bus, right? Right. Open open the window. And he would not only wait, he said, he would run after the bus and he would throw me candies through the window for the for the first, you know, half block block until until I was thrown out of place. He says, I went away for the summer. I went away with like a huge, huge package of knowing that my parents would miss me, my father would miss me, he was thinking about me, he cared about me. I felt like the world. This is, what do those kids feel like? Huh. Four weeks of respite care. You know? Kids taking care of them, be a little bit quieter, less carpools to drive, don't have to worry about taking anybody to soccer practice. No, they're taken care of for a month. It's a different model. It's a completely, completely different model and a different feeling which is given to the child, to the one who can, who can, potentially, can potentially benefit. I'm happy to pause and take a breath. Anybody have any questions or comments? I would say to that that a lot of the kids nowadays don't want their parents to be young. They say, just leave me and go. They feel a little bit embarrassed about it. Yeah. That, that was my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be the parent that's inside. Right. <laughs> so, so, so one, one can be, uh, I, I, I know that experience as well in a certain, at certain times, and one can be, um, uh, manage to be sensitive to the embarrassment of the children and still, in some significant way, be able to be there. You know, there's such a thing as dropping off your child because, okay, and there's, are you sure I can't stay? Okay, look, if you don't want me to stay, I'm not going to stay. But, you know, maybe, you know, if you stay in the car for a little bit longer, the bus isn't here yet. Okay, around the corner where your friends don't see that we're staying here. You know, really, and literally, and in the end, you know, 
They they don't want to be embarrassed, but they they can really appreciate it, and they know that it uh, that it that it matters that you care. I once had a, a one of our boys when he was a little older. He was a he was a, in um, he was in a, a school which was which was a little bit away from home, and we used to take turns picking picking them up. So every time I went to pick them up, so my uh, my my crew, some a couple of uh, a couple of uh, older daughters would have said, "Could you please bake fresh chocolate chip cookies for the kids?" Right, and I did it, and my son started off being embarrassed, and then he ended off being extremely proud, like the kids, like his, his friends, you know, were exactly that teenagers. They they you know they loved it, and it shows. You know, so you know, there's, there's ways to somehow somehow try to turn around to turn around uh, the the opportunity. Now a piece of this, if we can move on to sort of a second point, and it's also within this general realm of uh, of focus and attention, but uh, something more specific, and I think another important parental task is that a, a basic job of a parent is to make sure that their child feels like they have somewhere to turn when they're concerned. Some vital need that the Talmud teaches, also based on a proverb found in the book of Proverbs, it says, Daga lev ish yisichana. A worry that a person has in their heart, yisichana. And the Talmud says what that means is they should have someone to talk to about it. They should feel that they have someone to talk to about the issue. Every human being in this world lives with concerns and with fears. And the ability to have someone to turn, to not just keep it inside you, but to have somewhere where you can turn, where you feel a confidence, and a safety in being able to share it is very vital. Each and every one of us, whatever our age or stage, should should have that. Sometimes we need to hire somebody to be that person. But ideally, we try to find it in a friendship, in a mentorship, in a relationship of one kind or another. For our children, for the members of our family, we need to try as we can to be that person Sometimes, for because family dynamics are complicated, so we can't be ourselves that person. So make sure there's somebody, you know, who is that person. A child has to be able to feel that they can be heard, that they can be spoken to. One of the critical elements of relationship, which is certainly true of parental relationships, it's certainly true of spousal relationships, even true of employer-employee, client, and, uh, and uh, provider relationships is to really listen to what the other person is saying, to be open, to encourage, what they call it the art of active listening, of encouraging somebody to, you know, to speak. And people will only speak, children will only speak, adults will only speak, if they feel secure that they're gonna be heard, that the what you're saying, what they're saying to you is not going to set you off, either by making you angry or frustrated or disenchanted with them. But you can talk, you can share whatever it is, and I'm going to be okay. And you know, this is part of creating that sense of value and of importance, but it also leads us sort of to the second piece. If the first is about focus versus distraction, the second is about that sense of stability. Pirkei Avot again teaches us about Ava She'ena Tuya B'davar, which we translate simply as unconditional love. A love which is unconditional, the Mishnah teaches us, lasts. A love which is conditional, inevitably, does not last. And that conditional could be on silly superficial things. Uh, people have relationships which are built on money and power and good looks and who knows what. And those things can disappear when 
the cycles of life caused some of those things to disappear. And sometimes it could even be based on, on good behavior. I want to teach you an outstanding teaching from the Maharal of Prague. The Maharal of Prague was a 16th century thinker, a great thinker. And he was puzzled. Actually, he responded to a question which was asked, posed, several hundred years earlier, 400 years earlier, by Nachmanides. What was the question? So you know that the father of the Jewish people was Abraham. And the Torah introduces us to Abraham in its third parsha, its third portion, parsha Lechlecha. Really, at the end of the previous portion, it tells us his ancestry, it tells us his family dynamic, his family, not dynamic, his family, who they were, where he came from, his father's name, his brother's name, his wife's name, but then we have the, the chapter, and it says, and God said to Abraham, I want you to go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and there I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name known, and you will be a blessing, you will be a source of blessing to all of the families of the earth. And Rabban Achmanides has a basic, simple question, and he says, I don't get it. Why him? The Torah doesn't explain to us in any which way why Abraham. In the previous portion of the Torah, which is the portion of Noah, Noah and the flood, before anything, the Torah tells us Noah was a very righteous person. In his generation, he was the most perfect of people. And so he was chosen to be the one, to be the kernel of the next world. From him, the whole world would grow. But when it comes to Abraham, the choice of Abraham, it doesn't tell us, you know, Abraham was a very kind person, which we know, and we'll learn about later, and Abraham was a person who discovered God, which we know from tradition, from Midrashic sources and hints. None of that is said. It just says, God said to Abraham, go. What happened? Why? Why him? So listen to him, Aral, explain this. He said, you see, the Torah specifically doesn't say why. Because what was happening here was that God was establishing a special relationship with Abraham. That's the moment of the choosing of the chosen people. He's establishing a relationship, a covenant, a connection with Abraham. Now, if you're going to say, so, you know, Abraham was very kind and he discovered and believed in God, and he served God, and so God chose him. What's going to happen if one day Abraham, or one of Abraham's descendants, who continues this relationship, isn't so kind? Or perhaps they struggle with their faith, and they're not actively involved in serving God. Then what happens? Is the deal off? I mean, it might sound like it, Abraham, I chose you, I love you because of this, that, and the other. No. God established a relationship with Abraham. It's unconditional. And to convey the unconditional nature of that relationship, it doesn't say why. I think everyone who establishes a relationship establishes a relationship for reasons. Why did I marry my wife? Why do, why do people establish marriages, friendships, relationships? There were certain things, which of course, which, which I saw in her, which she saw in me, and that's why we got married. But thank goodness, under the chuppah, under the bridal canopy, we weren't asked to give the list of the reasons why we married each other. Would have been a little bit embarrassing, a little private, but for a more basic reason. Because of course, I chose and she chose for reasons A, B, and C. But once we chose, it doesn't matter why we chose, we chose. We create a relationship. And relationship has to be absolute and unconditional. The reasons disappear, it doesn't matter. It's absolute and it's unconditional. Unconditional love. With our children, we have all kinds of dreams for them. Sometimes when we give those blessings, we can say things that we want and that we dream. And we say, God should make you into a successful attorney, no, or something like that, you know, or whatever else it is. He should make it that you behave well in, 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 you know, in school. 
you should make it that you don't experiment with things that you would be better off not experimenting with. So the child comes home one day and they are perturbed because someone talked them into experimenting with something that they shouldn't have. And they know that it's disappointing to their parents. And they say, you know, this is on my mind. I feel bad about this. I feel worried about this. I feel worried about what the next step is going to be. Or are they afraid that if they share it, everything will change, or a lot will change? Don't you want them to share with you rather than the opposite? Do you want them to know your values so strongly that they're scared to death to tell you that as a child or as a person they might have compromised those values for a little bit, or tested or tried, and then they're going to have to turn someplace else or no place to be able to have acceptance, to be able to have somebody hear them? You want that there should be a true sense of unconditional love. Something which any person worries about. You know, the fragility that to some degree exists within the family. Children worry. They worry about the partners that were involved in their creation. You know, the Talmud says that every human being, there are three partners that go into into making us. Shlosha, Shutfim, Ba'adam. There are three partners in every person. The father, the mother, and God. And every human being, you'll go and you'll look at their DNA sequence and you'll see a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I have this good nature debate with, uh, with my wife whenever she sees a child, she immediately analyzes and says who the child looks like. And I say, child looks like both parents. You just have to find which part looks like this one and which part looks like that one. That's, it's, it's just, it's a fact. That's the way, that's the, that's the way it is. There are partners in every person. And, you know, and when there are partners that are really there and connected between anything, and the partners struggle or argue or need to somehow go their separate ways, and this child is, a, is an entity which is a combination of the two, That's, it's hard, it's difficult. Of course we understand that sometimes it's something that has to happen, something that has to happen. But the, the value, certainly in, in whether in an impact home or one that has gone in separate ways, of helping children see a real shlom bayit, a real sense of togetherness, cooperation between the parties. I don't think there's anything more valuable than we, that we can give to our children is to have that sense of cohesion that surrounds them. A sense of the two parts that are them. Right? I know part of me is he and part of me is she and you know they're really they're they're together. There's a there's a, a, a synergy of togetherness, and that makes every person feel whole. Every person feel whole when they uh, when they have that when they feel that way. To create that sense, to have connection, a lasting connection, and to have the the sense of security that comes that comes along with that. You know that. There is a, the Columbia School of Social Work, named for Joseph Califano, did some significant research about substance abuse prevention programs. What can be done effectively to make it less likely that children will experiment, whether with alcohol or drugs or things like that? And you know, there are all kinds of programs which are out there in the market. They looked and they tested and they explored and they found one program which surpassed every other program by a country mile. And the program was family dinner. Families that have dinner together, families have dinner together five times a week, 
drastically, drastically reduces the likelihood that the children in that family will experiment with or to get involved with, with, with substance. If they have it twice a week, it's also significant, not nearly as significant as the five, but nevertheless significant. That, no slides, no PowerPoint presentation, no parading the children through a, a rehab center or taking them to the scene of a drunk driving accident or something like that, just having dinner together. Families sitting around the table together, touching base with each other, speaking to each other, seeing your child's eyes. And when a child gets off someplace, their eyes change. You know, the light goes out, the light dims, the distraction. They won't look you in the eyes, but you have a chance to see it the day that it happens, the next day. That's when you have the chance to realize that something is wrong, and if you have that communication, you have the chance to step in. When you have a family that sits around the table on a regular basis, they communicate. People hear what's going on. You're checking in with each other. That problem, that unhappiness, it's found early. We communicate positively. We share values around the table. You know, the hidden element, not the hidden element, the, 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 what's the element of that story that we started with, of that Friday night blessing? Well, one piece is, you know, here's the child being treated like a beloved individual, with their feeling their parents' hands, you know, cupping their head, giving them a warm kiss, praying for them. Prayer helps. Prayer helps. Hey, you know, I'm a rabbi, I'm supposed to say something predictable, right? But you know, it, 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 right, right? Prayer for the well-being of our children. We're praying for them. That's a meaningful, meaningful thing. It makes a very, very big difference in the lives of our children. But there's something else that we say. We speak about, let this child be, what's the blessing? There's a traditional blessing. Besides, may God bless you and keep you. May he shine his countenance upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he bring peace to you, which are just simple prayers for their well-being. It starts with, may God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. May God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. We, we speak about models. We speak about values. When Abraham got that blessing that we referred to before, it was said to him, and they should be blessed through you, all of the families of the earth. You shall be blessed, all of the families of the earth. You know, for many years I read that verse, and I didn't notice it really sufficiently. It would seem that it's describing Abraham as being such a source of blessing to the world. It should say, through you shall be blessed, all of the nations of the world. So it uses an unusual terminology, all the families of the earth. And then I came to realize that that's really what Rashi is pointing out there. When he says, you know what that means? What that means is that when parents turn to their children, they're going to say, you know, I would love for you to be like Abraham. Now again, not Abraham the successful doctor. No, Abraham the human being. Abraham the picture of goodness. And God says, Abraham, you are going to be a model of the kind of values, the kind of personality that people will strive when parents turn to their children and they speak to them about what's valuable in life, which we must do. That's not imposing, it's not over-parenting to speak to your children about what is dear, what is important. You can take that conversation in ways which are over-parenting and over-enforcing, but just to sing the praises of things which are real, which are valuable, which are important, that's what we do when we give a blessing. And that's a familial task. Yes, to Abraham was also a charge. You should be someone that people look at you and say, I want people to say that they should be their children. They wish that their children would be like you. That's a task. That's a mission to be an example. But it's also just enough to say and to teach that that's something which we do, something which we convey in a meaningful 
and, uh, and serious way. Now if we go back again to Pirkei Avot, which teaches us those chapters of fathers and parents, it's, it's teaching us how to live life. So in the first chapter, I think it's the fourth and fifth paragraphs in the first chapter, we have two sages who were together. They were contemporaries. One's name was Yossi ben Yoezer, and one the other was Yossi ben Yochanan. And both of them had lessons to teach, as is the way of Pirkeavot. And they both started with Yehi Beitcha. Your house shall be. They gave guidance about what a house should be. And one of them said, your house should be a meeting place for the wise. A place where there's learning, where people probe and think. And the other one said, your house should be open wide, should be welcoming. And in a sense, what it is, what it's presenting is a twin mission. A home should be a place of learning, of thinking, of curiosity, where we identify that which is meaningful and important. And a home should be a place of kindness, a place of giving, a place of security. That's the dual task when we, when we build a home. A family dinner is a chance to bring both of those together without inviting a scholar in residence. A person has to be the scholar in residence at their own table, talking about what's valuable. Again, does that mean every Tuesday night? You know, between, uh, you know, between courses, if there are courses, right? That you're gonna have a major philosophical discussion no, 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 it's not stilted. Okay, here's the topic for tonight's dinner. It doesn't have to be that way. But when there's conversation, values should be communicated, communicated, ought to be communicated. What are you, you know, this is going on in the world. We speak about it from a framework of values. We inquire just simply about the well-being of each other and have a chance to care and to show and to demonstrate caring. We get to do in that sense, fulfill the dual nature of the home. So that's, that's I think, leads us perhaps into you know, the last piece, which is not disconnected from the first two. And the first one was trying to give a sense of focus, which gives us a sense of attention, of importance, of significance to the members of our family. And the second is like sort of the sense of stability, of unconditional love, which families which manage to get together on a regular basis, you know, for 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 the family dinner and the like, you know, have a chance to be able to do that. But the last is is a sense of intimacy. A sense of intimacy. Intimacy means you know, just us. And I'm not here even talking about the intimacy of husband and wife, which is an extremely important sense uh, to create but just the intimacy of family. Our houses don't have walls anymore. They don't have walls anymore. I remember when I was a, a child, when we would have dinner, so then if you wanted to make sure that dinner went uninterrupted, what did you do? You took the phone off the hook, and it was done. One phone, Right? All the phones in the house were connected to one line. If you take one phone off the hook, you're done. If you wanted to disconnect, you have four people sitting around the table. If you wanted to make sure you weren't interrupted tonight, how many different buttons would you need to push? You may not even have a phone on your wall anymore, right? <laughs> how many different things would you need to push? It's amazing how difficult it is to have a private space to create a sense of intimacy where it's just, okay, let's just talk about what we value. Let's just focus on each other. And we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, 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 an observant Orthodox Jew, and so no electronics for the 25 hours of Shabbat. And, you know, it's, it's, thank goodness, it's like, it feels like God may have just created this Shabbos 
just for the 21st century, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing thing that whether you, without any efforts, without all those self-discipline programs that all of us engage in, you know, that last almost as long as our diet, you know, where we're, we're going to make sure before the meal, everyone is going to put their, their devices in a box and we're going to close the box and how long does it last? But, you know, this is sort of like an involuntary project. We get to sit together and eat together without interruption. We get to create a culture of home and family that's not changed, bombarded by things from the outside. It's just here. It's just us. You know that there's a family dinner, which is the legendary Jewish family dinner. And what's that? The Pesach Seder. The Pesach night Seder. Such an important, critical Jewish observance. It's an opportunity when parents communicate their values to their children. They speak about, we speak, we teach about our past. We teach, therefore, in a sense, about our destiny and about our future. And in a certain sense, it is modeled after that first night when God passed over the houses of the Jews as he went and he struck the first one of Egypt to gain to us our freedom. That's, a ha that's the night when we build family in a great sense. And on that first night in Egypt, there was an instruction. It said, nobody should leave their house the whole night. Nobody should leave the door of their house until the morning. The home is the safest place in the world. It should be. When Naomi blessed her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her other daughter, former daughter-in-law, as she was trying to take leave of them, she said, I bless you, they were widowed. And she wanted them to start life again in new relationships. And she said, God should grant you that you should find menucha, isha, beit isha. You should find rest, you should find peace. Each woman in the home together with her husband. That was the definition of what a home is supposed to be like. A safe place. A safe place. A place that, you know, within it, you can create something. The porousness of the walls of our homes to all that comes in from all kinds of directions. There's no, there's no way that we can wait make the walls of our homes non-porous. Just, there's just no way. I mean, nobody is going to completely shut themselves off from the world outside, and there's so much to gain from going beyond the walls of your home, from letting all kinds of things in. But there's also so much to gain from significantly also creating times when the walls, when they're real, so that together inside those walls, we can build something without static, without the distraction, without the things that intrude, to create, in that sense, our own world of values, a certain intimacy. All of these things, they feed into each other. The sense of intimacy is part of the sense of focus, which is going to be part of that sense of stability. You know, if you make it three points, there would be arrows from all of them, and you could turn it in whichever direction you want. You could start with one and go to the other. But these are needs, and they're exceptionally the needs of 21st century. Parents, the focus is a challenge. The stability, the unconditional love, is a challenge. And the sense of intimacy is a challenge. And it's a challenge which we all can meet. I want to conclude with my favorite parenting story of all time. It has nothing to do with me, but this story still, when I say it, when I think about it, I remember it. Remarkable. So there's a family that I, I live in Baltimore. I came to Baltimore. I grew up in Montreal together, yes. <laughs> um, and um, I grew up in Montreal. And in, in 1982, 
when I was finished with high school, I, I went to Baltimore. So a rabbinical college in Baltimore, which was called the Nerezu Rabbinical College, where I studied for a number of years. And there was a family that was part of, the, of, the, of, that, of that school's community that, um, that lived on the campus. There were many families, there, there were faculty residents on the camp, campus. And this is a family name is the Tender family. Uh, the, the, the husband of the family was the, um, was the principal of the high school program. I was never in the high school program. He was the principal of the high school. His wife was a remarkable woman. He was a remarkable person. His wife was a remarkable woman. She was a, a, a nurse. She, was, she worked in area hospitals. She was the nurse on campus. And uh, on the side, she raised her 12 or 13 children. She had a rather large, large family. And um, I remember hearing that, uh, that she, whenever they would go on outings with, uh, you know, with a bunch of their kids, she always wanted one of their children to bring a friend. Because she said what would happen always would be that somebody would ask and say, are those all yours? And she would say, no, 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 of course not. And when her husband got wind of this, he would say, no, of course not. We have many more at home. <laughs> so they had this huge beach family, and yet they were, it was amazing, like the most nurturing parents in the world. I remember always like seeing, you know, his, her husband who was like six foot four, and he was known as a tough guy, and he would walk into the services, you know, at the conclusion of Shabbos, like completely unselfconsciously, I can say, just holding the hand of his, of his sons. Of his, of his sons walk into the Wante Lair. That's just, you know, and like she, you know, on a Friday afternoon when she's busy preparing for Shabbat, she would say, forget another kugel, right? Forget that. And she sat down on the couch and she read stories to her children. So she, unfortunately, she has passed away. But um, a number of years ago, one of her children, who was a, a, a teacher, administrator in a school in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, he had to go through dialysis. He started dialysis, and um, and uh, he had dialysis wherever. Let's say the first time on a Monday, and afterwards, you know, she called him and she said, "Eliyahu, how are you doing? How did it go?" And he said, "Well, it it it, it was hard." It's hard physically, but I'm having a hard time. Just generally, what, why, what's so hard? He says, you know, it's so draining, so draining. And I go there and I sit there for hours. I sit there for hours. So like, I took a book, I couldn't focus. I brought, you know, a, an MP3 player and I put in, you know, my headphones you know, to listen to something, to a lecture, to a talk, to something of substance. I couldn't focus. They have there like over every bed, you know, they have, you know, these, you know, televisions. And, you know, mommy, when you raised us in the house, you wanted us to be focused on each other. You wanted to have some walls around the house. We didn't have a television in the house. I don't have a television in my house. I've spent my whole life now till, till 40 that when I have time, I listen to something that's productive, that's uplifting. And, you know, now when I feel like I'm like hovering between life and death, and it's such an important, really time for me. Now suddenly I should go be spending like 10 hours a day sitting and being a couch potato. You know, it just doesn't seem like the right thing for me, like the right time. You know, like it's sort of like a delicious question. So you go, oh, you know, I, that is hard. That is hard. And she was really empathetic with him. Wednesday, he went back for dialysis at 11 o'clock in the morning. And he settles into the, the, the chair, whatever it is, the bed, you know. And at 11.05, his cell phone rings. And it's his mother. And she called him to talk. And she stayed on the phone with him for two and a half hours, just talking, so that he wouldn't have to be unhappy, uncomfortable, having to do something else. And then they finished. And a few days later, when he went to dialysis again, again, 
she called me, and she stayed on the phone with me for hours. She did this for the many months that he had dialysis. On okay, it looked like she had a she had a life, so to speak, and she was still she sometimes couldn't do it. So one of her kids substituted, and they called, and they sat on the phone with him for hours. Now, I don't know about you, but I asked myself, when was the last time I sat and talked with one of my kids for two hours? Period. When was the last time I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't remember it? I don't remember. Even if I drove with them someplace, I don't remember. Isn't that like an image of somebody saying, it's not just like a one minute cupping of the head on the, the, the hand on the head, you know, Friday night to get a blessing. Like, you need me now. I have nothing more important in the world than to spend this time with you. Today, tomorrow, the day after. An amazing, amazing image of what a person could be as a parent. Even if we can't get all the way there, at least it maybe inspires us to stand a little bit higher up on our tippy toes to be something, to create a sense of intimacy, of focus, of stability, of just being there, of helping people around us understand that they are the most important person in the whole world for me. And then, who knows where it can go. I hope and pray that each of us can derive something, derive something from this and strive to be better in relationship to bring a greater sense of strength, of significance, of stability, of love, 